Thanks. Whoa. Thanks, Rick. Let's pray. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you that you are a God who did not leave us to walk in darkness, but you have shown a great light that you have given us yourself that you would be our treasure. As we study your word this morning, Father, I pray that our hearts would be stirred with the hope of the coming Christ. Let us fix our eyes on you, Jesus. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, it is officially Christmas season. So all of you who have been judging me for listening to Christmas music since August, you can stop. I loved Christmas when I was a kid, and I love it now. Christmas is a very special time. It's a time of anticipation and wonder. There's a song to see Christmas through the eyes of a child, if you could just imagine that for a moment. It's a time where memories are made, and it's a time where we get to remember past memories. And with that said, it can also be a time that's very hard. While on the one hand, we feel the joy and hope of the season, we can also be reminded of loved ones we have lost, or distressed family relationships. Or we may wrestle with not experiencing the joy and happiness that people tell us this season is supposed to be all about. As we like to say about a lot of things in life, it's complicated. And it's good for us as Christians to stop and reflect on what we are celebrating in Christmas and why we are celebrating it. Some of you may know, but it's dated all the way back to the 4th century where the church began celebrating and leading up to Christmas this season called Advent. And as a church, we want to celebrate and observe Advent for several reasons, but here are four that I came across from Desiring God while studying for this week. First, it gives us an opportunity to slow down and reflect amid a very frantic season. Secondly, it helps us remember that we are not, you and I, we are not the center of the universe, and we are not the center of history. Thirdly, it reminds us of the generations that came before us that hoped in the coming Messiah. And finally, it teaches us patience. As we anticipate Christmas, we should anticipate Christ's second coming. For Advent here at Trinity, we are going to slow down our, st- uh, our series in Isaiah. And we're going to focus on this verse in chapter 9, verse 6, and look at the names of God as wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, and prince of peace. And as I mentioned earlier, we want to slow down and reflect because along with the joy and anticipation can come confusion and anxiety. 
and questions. As created beings, we search for answers and we find comfort in answers we like. We desire knowledge and wisdom to help us deal with the complexities of life, asking questions like, how do I handle a complicated family situation? How can I be happy and healthy? What is my purpose in life? What is good? And how can I do more good for this world? Answers are given from all sorts of different sources. Philosophers and religious leaders for centuries have written books, miles and miles of books, trying to answer these questions. Today on social media and bloggers, writers, authors give us 14 reasons why and 22 ways to live a good life. Celebrities and artists take their platform, giving their opinion on how we should think or feel or act about causes and topics across the moral and political landscape. And if you look across these mainstream media outlets, the feel-good counsel that comes from these sources has a very common theme. And it's a theme we're all drawn to. And it's just that you and I, we need to look inward. If you don't know what to do, dig deeper into your heart. What is your truth? The answer you seek, it's inside you. But this counsel, it isn't new. In previous weeks, we've seen Judah and King Ahaz searching for an answer to the stress and their security apart from the counsel Isaiah has been given them from the Lord. Ultimately, King Ahaz did seek what he thought was right. As Alex explained, Ahaz, Isaiah warned Ahaz not to trade Judah's sovereignty to another nation when their God, the God of Israel, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob was sovereign over all the nations. But instead, Ahaz looked to what would be classified as common knowledge. As the judges say, and, and excuse me, as it says in the book of Judges, Ahaz did what was right in his own eyes. He rejected listening to the counsel of God and he did his own truth. And in our passage today, we're going to see how Ahaz's failed, failed counsel in conspiracy and his failed counsel in his spiritualism, we're going to see how those contrast to the wonderful counselor, our God. You see, the answer to all of our questions and anxieties are not found in a system of beliefs or in ourselves, but in a person named Jesus, our wonderful counselor. So let's look at the passage today. In chapter 8, starting in 11, we see that Judah takes counsel by developing a conspiracy as an attempt to explain the reality that they are experiencing. See, King Ahaz and Judah are at a complete loss over the serial Ephraimite threat. Ahaz is terrified. He is going to take over as king and completely fail. Picture yourself as Ahaz for a moment, right? His father, the king who came before him, ruled for over 50 years. That is completely unprecedented in the ancient Near East. The bar has set, been set high, and he doesn't know what to do. He doesn't have answers. Do you ever feel that pressure to measure up? Maybe you have a successful parents or sibling or a successful childhood friend who just seem to have gotten right, excuse me, seem to have gotten life right. But when you look at your own life, you're kind of like, 
why does everything I do mess up? I, I can't quite get that approval. I can't quite measure up to what I'm supposed to be. Where do you go for counsel, for answers? See, Ahaz believed he could somehow pull himself up by his bootstraps and leave a name for himself in the record books of Judah. But God warns Isaiah not to give in to conspiracy the way Judah did, where they were trying to explain away their current circumstances and reject the idea that their, their circumstances had been developed because of their own sinfulness. God explains to Isaiah that this paranoid conspiracy came simply because Judah and Ahaz did not fear God. They instead feared Assyria and other nations. Last week, if you were with us, Ah Alex, excuse me, not Ahaz, Alex, (laughs) Alex (laughs) challenged us asking, what do we fear? And we may, like Judah, fear outside forces, other countries that are threatening America and going to lead to political upheaval. Or we may, like Ahaz, fear that we will not measure up in this lifetime. Or maybe we fear our finances, our work environment, the economy, our family, the approval of others. You name it. You know your life better than I do. And whatever fear we may have, God is saying that fear is directly linked to the fact that we do not fear God. See, but what does it mean to fear God, right? Well, let's look at the verse right here, all right? Looking in uh, 13, verse 13, he says, But the Lord of hosts, him you shall honor as holy. Let him be your fear. Let him be your dread. In contrast to the fear of other nations, God is saying the the contrast to the fear of other nations is regarding God as holy. To honor God as holy can simply be translated to sanctify him or to set him apart as others. In other words, God is telling Isaiah that a sign of God's people will be that they do not, that a sign of God's people will be that they do not hold God as common, but instead hold him as high and lifted up. And here's the thing. Our God of the universe is not common. He's a God of majesty and wonder and magnificence. An encounter with God today will not blend into the every day mundane of life. It will be a day that you remember. Christian, how do you honor God and regard him as holy today? Ask yourself, how do you talk about God to others? How do you use his name in everyday language? How do we handle the Bible when we open it and read it? Do we read it as the word of God? How do we walk into our church Sunday morning or into our small groups throughout the week? The reason we stand here at Trinity when we read the word of God isn't because we just need to be traditional and stand up. No, we're practicing this idea of honoring our God, honoring his word. So we stand up in reverence. We should never, never just stand up because that's what we do. D.A.X. Carson explains this difference, this, this effect when we come into this lack of fear of God, saying that we do not, when we do not fear God or regard him as distinct from us, we revert into a study known as theodicy as opposed to theology. 
So you see, in theology, it's the study of God, and it drives us to worship. But the Odyssey is just a fancy word to say it's our attempt to explain or give justification for the way God acts. So in other words, we look at the world and we look at the problems of the world and we try to skirt around the truths of God and explain God away or explain this is why God did this and this is, this, you know, this is how it works, whereas opposed to studying God himself. And when we try and justify God's actions, we are thinking of ourselves as an equal of God. Do y'all see that? We may profess that God created everything and he's in control, but we also believe that he has some explaining to do as to why he let the world get this way. You see, the problem here is never in the solution that we can come to with that answer, in that question, but the question itself. And we should ask questions and wrestle with truth. As worldview says, the truth merits inspection. But we should wrestle and ask questions to God. We should not challenge God to try or try and describe him away. See, Paul speaks to this in Romans 9.20, saying, But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, Why have you made me like this? In order to just try and succinctly put this in a few words, I want to drop just a truth bomb. Get ready. If you're taking notes, write this down. And if you're not taking notes, pull out a pen and paper and write this down. Get ready. You are not God. Now, everybody, say it with me. I am not God. Now, turn to your neighbor. You are not God. That's, I, I realize that's silly. Seems very odd. But in preparing this and, and studying this, and if you've lived life long enough, you start to realize, like, sometimes I think I am God. I've done this. I, I struggle with this all the time. We, we all do. We become like King Ahaz. We look to at our fears and our anxieties and our problems in this life, and we believe that we have the answers. We hold the solutions. We, we believe that we just have to pull everything together and make it work. See, when we forget this reality, we find false, false counsel outside of God's will for our lives, and it only leads to trouble. See, we are created beings not for our own independence. Independence is just entirely a completely Western idea. But besides that, we're not even created just for humanity interdependence. People, church, me, Josiah, all of us, we are created to be dependent on our creator. If you're in here today and you are clenching onto control, if you believe you just have to put that best idea, best foot forward always, so when people look at you, they're like, dang, Josiah's got it together. Let me just invite you to stop. That was not who you were created to be. That is only going to lead to what Ahaz is experiencing here, complete distress. Submit to your God and look to the wonderful counselor for counsel. Because as it says in verse 14 through 15, look with me. And he will become a sanctuary 
and a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling to both houses of Israel, a trap and a snare to the inhabitants of Jerusalem. And many shall stumble on it. They shall fall and be broken. They shall snare, be snared and taken. If you've been with us through Isaiah, one of our, the major trends we see in the, past, the scripture is that God's people had the cultural religion, but they did not have it in practice. So when God is calling Isaiah not to call to conspiracy, but instead to fear God, he is calling him to the very basics of faith. Isaiah is not some sort of varsity Christian who's got it all right. He's contrasting the, sing, the symbol, the, the signs of God's people versus the signs of the people who are not God's. God is making a point that a trait of his people is that they do not stumble over him as if they're walking in darkness, but instead they run to him as their sanctuary. And a sanctuary is a place of refuge, and it's also a symbol in scripture as a place where God is. God's people will be in communion with him. Ray Ortland puts it this way, saying, how we treat God determines how we experience God. You see, Ahaz did not regard God or did not fear God or regard him as holy. So he walked through the troubles of his life and he stumbled over the rock of offense. He stumbled over God because he roamed in darkness. God was not his refuge and sanctuary. Talk about a trade-off. Do you hear the irony here? What was intended to be the place for Ahaz to run to when trouble came after him was instead a source of stumbling. And God, God is not a stumbling block because he's some sort of vindictive creator who doesn't like it when his people don't listen to him. God is a stumbling block because he is simply there. We will not skirt around the truth of God. We may watch the Bible and Christianity dissipate from like different corners of our culture, but the word of God and the truth of God will always remain faithful. It will not change and it will stay. So hear me, please. If you are in here this morning, young or old, and you're relationship, your attitude to God is passive or a laissez-faire idea where I just come to God as need, search your heart. Because you're either, one of two things, you're either walking in rebellion or you are not a child of God. He is calling you to him today. Secondly, we see Judah and Ahaz take false, failed counsel and spiritualism. The second counsel Ahaz looks to in their time of confusion and paranoia was to ask mediums and necromancers to receive wisdom from the dead. They rejected what was the testimony of God from his prophets, but instead wanted to call on Isaiah to speak to the dead for a good word that they would like to affirm. Well, most of us in here today and most of our culture aren't going practicing the arts of the occult. I realize that. But cultural Christianity and our culture does, however, tend to manipulate scripture and spiritual principles to fit our lifestyle or give us that extra boost we need to live a good life. We Christians can be absolute suckers for uh, verses on a coffee mug or cleats with Philippians 4.13 on them, right? Tim Tebow, go play baseball. And we should have 
we should have verses in places to bring those to our minds, right? But we should not hold to a truth like I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me as a motivation to score a touchdown. See, when we use scripture this way, we treat God as a wise sage or as just simply a spoke in our wheel of a successful life. And I don't want to be nitpicky over someone like athletes who do that. But we need to ask ourselves, again, how are we handling the word of God? So as opposed to looking to the occult, Isaiah has a different point of view. Look with me at verse 16 through 18 again. He says, bind up the testimony, seal the teaching among my disciples. I will wait for the Lord who is hiding his face in the house of Jacob. I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwell, dwells on Mount Zion. Rather than running to his religiosity or his spiritualism, Isaiah runs to the truth and the word of God. When he says bind up the testimony, he's not just referring to what he has said to Judah here, but he's refer- referring to the Bible, the word of God himself. It, excuse me, the word of God itself. The word testimony is used throughout scripture as a reference back to itself. And Isaiah's focus on the testimony is a confession of his need for God to give him counsel in his current circumstances. You see, Isaiah is making it clear that he will not run to a man-made solution or change what he has spoken to be the word of God to be more appealing to those around him. He's saying he will instead hold fast. Listen, Isaiah's circumstances were not very promising and were not pleasant. He had a job that the world would look at and say he was a complete failure. Remember Isaiah 6? God tells him, who will listen? No one. If you're a preacher and no one is listening to you, you are not doing a very good job. His country and his people are on the brink of destruction, and he knows what they need to do, but they will not listen. So what does Isaiah do? Does he adjust his message so that at least he can live a good life if it's leading to destruction anyways? Isaiah's response I will wait for the Lord. Well, waiting is not a statement of inactivity, but it's a statement of steadfastness, of faithfulness. Waiting on the Lord is a statement of faithfulness to what God has said he will do. When Isaiah says he will bind up the word of God, he's confessing that he will not change his belief in God or he will not change and adjust the word of God despite his circumstances, he still believes his God is faithful and his faith is not tied to his circumstances, but to God himself. Where are you trying to take control of your life and insist your will as to oppose to what God has said he will do? Maybe you're looking for a new job or you're trying to get ahead in your job. Are you going to trust God in good work and know that he has placed you where he has placed you? Are you going to 
step into and abide into the company culture that kind of takes corners and does what it has to to get ahead in corporate America. I live in that world. I, I, I see it every day. I know the temptation and the struggles because I've seen what executives and those people make. Or maybe it's in your marriage. And maybe you want to be married or maybe more specifically something or someone in your marriage needs to change. Are you following the word of God and trusting in his word? Are you fighting to make that person do what you believe and you know is right? Or maybe it's a child who is just forsaken, left following the Lord and is living in rebellion. Are you speaking truth to them? Or is it just easier to not live in conflict and just kind of say, okay, yeah, I accept accept this lifestyle now, even though it flies in complete opposition to the word of God. God invites us and he calls us to be like Isaiah here and hold steadfast to the word of God. See, Isaiah's hope and his waiting goes beyond his own lifetime, though. See, I, Isaiah understands that. And he, he understands that his answers and his reward is something greater than this life can even offer. Which leads us to our last point tonight, today. We find faithful counsel in a wonderful king. See, God blesses Isaiah, and he shows him what God's answers, answer to the problems will look like. God demonstrates his triumph with three analogies. And three analogies that will be signs of God's people. And in place of an unwise, unfaithful, and unable king, God is going to give himself as a wise, faithful, and able king. First, we see in 9-2, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them a light has shone. Light throughout the Bible is a sign of God's presence. God is promising that he will be with his people. He will not let them walk in their own darkness. 1 John 3-5 says that this is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. Earlier in our passage, Isaiah referred to God as a sanctuary to some and a rock of stumbling to others. But when the people who are walking in darkness, they are people who are stumbling on it over him. But now when his people who are in darkness have seen the light because God and God's grace and God's mercy has revealed his light, has revealed himself to his people, they take sanctuary in their God. The second illustration Isaiah gives is this idea of the joy of the harvest, reaping a harvest, dividing the spoil. And this illustration greatly demonstrates the work that God is doing as opposed to man. See, God has proclaimed that he will give himself to his people and they will experience finally true joy. God is promising that his people will feel the joy of the harvest and he, that God, will complete the work. All the work and all the burden that his people think they need to carry will be his to carry. So you see, Ahaz may have looked to how tactfully his father led Judah and thought it was his responsibility and his burden to now lead the country, lead Judah to success. Believed it was his battle to fight. And I said it once, I'm going to say it again. If you feel that you are constantly carrying that burden, 
that burden to live the right life, the burden to make your name known, the burden to you name it, I want to invite you to lay that down and take up another yoke. Matthew eleven twenty eight says it this way from the words of our Messiah, Jesus Christ, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. See, it's God's desire for us to come to him and be with him and learn from him to be more like Christ. The last illustration is the day of Midian. God points to the triumph victory that will come in that day and he compares it to one of the biggest advertisements of God's power amongst his people in scripture. God calls Gideon, who's a mild-mannered man who lacked a lot of faith. That fleece story isn't a sign of Gideon being bold and brave. That's a sign of Gideon having a lot of fear and lacking faith. After Gideon finally raises an army, what does God do? He takes 32K, 32,000 people and reduces it down to 300 people. And then what happens? They all stand there one night with their pots, throw them on the ground, and watch God give victory over the enemy. See, God is making the point that despite our inability to be victorious, he will be victorious. He will deliver and he will triumphantly put conflict to its final end. But how is he going to do this? Is God going to raise an army to deliver them here? No. What does it look like? Again, to quote Mr. Ray Ortland, God's answer to everything that has terrorized us is a child. You see, our counsel and our problems in life and our questions of life doesn't just come from God. That's, don't hear me saying that today. Don't hear me say, go to God and he'll give you a bunch of answers. You can write them down and you'll know how to live a good life. See, our counsel doesn't come from God or come from others about God. But our counsel is God himself. For unto us a child is born. For to us a son is given. A child king in contrast to a, faith, a faithless failed king, excuse me, King Ahaz. For us to walk in light and re- or receive joy as in the harvest or have a triumphal victory does not come because of how well we study theology or how well we know the details of theological terms or how well we muse philosophy or have experiential learning. All of those things are very important, but they all fall under the study of something else and more properly said of someone else. All of those things fall under the study of a person, a king, a king who is our wonderful counselor. We want to ask questions in life. What should I do? How should I respond? Where am I going? How do I handle you fill in the blank? But the real question we need to be asking is, who do I know? Matthew 6, again from Jesus says, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all of these things will be added to you. Not some, not most, not a little bit, all. God has given himself to us today. 
when that child grew, he never sinned and he died a sinner's death. And with that sinner's death, something amazing happened. You see, there was a temple and in that temple, there was a place called the Holy of Holies. And it was believed that that was the place where the presence of God dwelt. And in the moment that Jesus breathed his last breath, scripture tells us that an earthquake shook, the, the, the earth was shaken and the curtain that separated the presence of God from common man was split in two. And in that moment, the presence of God was given to man. You see, for the Christian today, we don't go to a Mecca. We don't go to some sort of spiritual pilgrimage to receive spiritual insight. We don't go to a priest. We don't go, have to go decode ancient writings or ancient poems. Our God has given himself to us today in the third person of the, uh, the Holy Trinity, all for our good. When we take our anxieties and our fears, our questions, our struggles to our God, we don't just get answers or guidance. We get God. And I'll be honest, I and mean, I believe some of you in here have experienced this and will agree. Sometimes our circumstances, they're not going to change. When we take them to God, when we go to God, our life doesn't change, but our heart changes. Our outlook on life changes. Sometimes God will Take that and he will give us, yes, we, there have been people who have longed for marriage, that you get married. They've longed for a child, they receive a child. You long for forgiveness, or excuse me, you long for complete deliverance, shake off bad habits and sin, they're gone. But sometimes that struggle, that pain, I'm not, I'm not gonna sugarcoat it. It doesn't go away. But there's something greater than that. You see, when we, when we go to God, when we go to our wonderful counselor, what God is showing us in that, when we experience that pain, he's saying, remember, I am your joy. I am your hope. I will satisfy you. And as great as that is, the, the truth of God as our wonderful counselor, it doesn't end there. Y'all realize this, that God, the Holy Spirit, our, our encounter with the Holy Spirit, as amazing as that is, that is not the pinnacle. You see, Isaiah hoped in the coming Messiah Jesus didn't come for another 700 years. But he did come. And when he left, he promised that he was coming again. You see, looking at a couple passages to talk about that, a couple promises real quick. Jeremiah 32, 40 says it this way. God promising his people in the end, I will make with them an everlasting covenant that I will not turn away from doing good to them. And I will put the fear of me in their hearts that they may not turn from me. Church, if you feel your heart turning away from God, it is a reminder that you are not home yet. This is not the end. There will be a day when the fear of God will be instilled in us perfectly. And on that day, we will never, never want anything other than our God. One more. 3133, again in Jeremiah, he says, I will put the law on them and I will write it on our hearts. It will be inscribed in us. Church, we hold to this truth today, but it is not fulfilled completely yet. So that's why this Advent season, this Christmas season, we're saying, let's remember the baby in the manger. Let's remember the cross. But church, let's remember that he's coming again. And on that day, we hope in that day. And on that day, every pain, 
every confusion you have, every question you have, it will be fulfilled, not in just an answer in and in a, some simple counsel and like, oh, it all makes sense now, but it'll be fulfilled in a person. That's why we say we want to treasure, treasure Christ because he is our hope. He is our joy. So if you're in here this morning and that's not you, you have that what I was describing as religiosity or spiritualism, I wanna invite you to come to the one who will give you rest. Come to the one who you will find hope in. And if you're in here today and you're, that has been your hope and you're looking at this Christmas season as, as a time where it's just gonna be with family and friends and, and that's great and we should do that. I wanna encourage you to take advantage of this Advent season. I'm gonna use a high church term. Contemplate on the truths of God. Muse on them. Think deeply on them. Let your heart be stirred. Let your heart be changed. Let's pray.